Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The prince's widow immediately becomes certain that Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. The race to shoot the first motion picture film was a heated one. Multiple people claimed to be the true inventor, including, of course, Thomas Edison. However, the first motion picture, the very first motion picture, was actually shot in Leeds in 1898 by a man you've probably never heard of called Louis Le Prince. It is undeniable that his legacy has been completely overshadowed by people like Edison and, of course, the Lumiere brothers. And perhaps that's because his inventing career was dramatically cut short. Le Prince actually disappeared in 1890, shortly before a scheduled trip to New York to showcase his new invention. He was witnessed boarding a train to Paris, but he was never to be seen again. I'm Dallas Campbell, and welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. And today on the show, we are joined by Paul Fisher, who's going to tell us the extraordinary story of Louis Le Prince and his untimely disappearance and the strange conspiracy that followed. Welcome, Paul Fisher, writer, filmmaker, journalist. You're a man of many hats. Thank you for having me. That's about all the hats. That's okay. You're in Alberta, and apparently it's very cold there at the moment. So what kind of temperature are we talking? I'm in Alberta, Canada, Edmonton. It's about minus 16 right now, which is standard. Crikey. You get used to that. You are inside. I am. You are inside, I should point inside. out. Inside. I listeners. am. He's not outside. No, I'm in my basement, which is the quietest, warmest Good. place to focus. Nice. Well, listen, thank you very much for coming to the show. Okay, so we're talking about the invention of the film camera today, and you've written a book about this. Well, it is about the invention of the film camera, but who knew that the invention of the film camera was a story of murder and intrigue and skullduggery and conspiracy and espionage? These are the kind of invention stories I like. 
because it's kind of wrapped up in all kinds of strange stories. So first of all, when I think of the invention of the movie camera, I tend to, not being an expert, I tend to think of Edison mm. and I think of the Lumiere brothers and I think of Georges Méliès and people like yes. that. I'd never, ever heard of Louis Le Prince. So who is Louis Le Prince? I hadn't heard of Louis Le Prince until a few years ago either. Louis Le Prince is essentially the first person to have ever made a motion picture in a sense that the oldest surviving motion picture we have, he made and can be dated. What do we mean by, I mean, we're not talking about things like zoetropes. We're not. And you know, those little novelty things that spin around and you get, yes. you get that persistence of vision type thing. You're talking like proper film as we would recognize it as film. Exactly. So shot on some version of film using a camera with a single point of view okay. for an extended period of time. You know, one of the key differences with zoetropes and those little spinning machines that in Victorian times is they were kind of made with cameras. They were lined up usually at several point of views that then they would be blended into one. Yes. And sort of that's the main demarcation line, I suppose, if you want to separate the prehistory of motion pictures and what we think of as actual motion pictures. One lens, yeah. one point of view. Uh, one shooting perspective. I was watching a Herzog thing the other day, actually, and he was talking about the prehistory of motion pictures in his Herzog voice like this. It was in Cave of Forgotten Dreams, and he was talking about the Chauvert Caves, where the cave paintings had this kind of blurred motion in it, where the animals would have sort of six legs. That's right. As if they were moving. And he said, this is the very first cinema. That was my Herzog impression. It's very good. Anyway, but yeah, that was that's a different kind of prehistory of cinema. Yeah. So I grew up in France and the accepted history that the Lumiere brothers invented film, period. Yeah. Is very well established. And every school kid can mm. go through the highlights of the myth. This idea that, you know, people had been trying to do this for years. They couldn't manage. And these two French bourgeois geniuses came up with it in one night. One of them had a migraine and then had a genius bit of inspiration. And they invented cinema and they called the machine the cinematographe. And that was it, period. They did it. We like nice, neat stories like that. We do. And I think we like them when they're patriotic, you know, and we can feel they represent the spirit of our country. So these two men, they were industrialists, they were middle class, they were intellectuals. What year are we talking about? 1895. Okay. Why were we interested in motion pictures at that particular time? When you said the Lumiere brothers had been trying to do this, why had they been trying to do this? Like, what was the context? Well, they'd been trying to do this to make money, but the wider context was, I think, the sense that human innovation had defeated nearly every law of physics. You know, there were limits on our travel, but then we invented machines that could make us go faster than anything in a natural world. There were limits on our way to take in the world, and then we invented photography and the ability to keep images at home, we invented mm. the telegraph and all these ways to communicate that kind of defeated time. And there was this idea that motion being the soul of all things, that if you were able to capture motion, then you had sort of defeated that last frontier of death. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. In a way, kind of sort of preserving reality in a way. Exactly. Capturing reality in a jar. And replay it at will. That's really, really interesting. I think I'd always assumed, oh, the sort of novelty value, the sort of Victorian novelty value of it, but actually something much more deeper, much more profound, really. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that drew me to Le Prince when I first heard about him, because Thomas Edison and the Lumiere brothers came to film for the novelty value. Can I use this mm. to make money? And I sort of realized that a lot of the ways we write our history of invention and innovation 
are essentially based in commercialism. Did something sell? Did it make someone money? Then that's the beginning of that technology. Mm -hmm. And Le Prince, I came to find, was possibly the first person or the first of those pioneers to want to invent motion pictures for something bigger than simply yeah. this will work in the market. You know, very often in the history of invention and innovation, you always seem to have a group of people. It's never mm. just one person. There always seems to be a cast of characters of which perhaps one will rise to prominence and others will be forgotten. And it seems to be that we've got that exactly here. We seem to have sort of three teams, if you like, Lumiere Brothers, Edison and Le Prince. Presumably there were others too. But there were many others. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, the Lumiere Brothers had their first screening in 1895 Le Prince made his first film in 1888, so seven years earlier. Gosh. When you say film, what are we talking about? We're not talking about Ben-Hur. No, we're talking about, it, there's sort of a home movie. People mm. call it the Round Hay garden scene, because it was shot in a garden in Round Hay. This is Le Prince. This, this is, is Le, Le Prince, outside of Leeds. Yeah. And he really was just filming his family, his parents and his son and a friend walking around in a circle. Yeah. outside as a sort of demonstration of how his machine could film things in natural sunlight moving in depth for an extended period of time. But we're only talking seconds. I mean, the Lumiere one I think of is train coming into station, I think, which is a, a few seconds or a minute or so of a train pulling in and that's it. Exactly. Judging from the records, that film was something of that sort of length. And what mm -hmm. survives is about 10 or 12 seconds. I had a look at it. I just watched it online, actually. There is a great beauty and a simplicity to it. It's exactly like a home movie. So just, okay, so let's paint a picture of Le Prince. Let's start there. So who was he? Why did he come up with this invention? What was the invention? Take us through that story. All right. So Louis Le Prince was French and middle class and had been born in the east of France. And by the 1860s, when he was in his young 20s, he had studied optics in Germany and chemistry and had worked as a painter's apprentice. And, you know, tall, handsome, dashing man with one of those fancy, elaborate beards that people at a period loved so much. And the sense you get from his story is that as a young adult, he didn't really have a purpose in what he wanted to do, but he was sort of straddling these two worlds of science and invention and chemistry on the one hand and the arts on the other hand, which would serve him very well later. And the turning point in his life is he met in Paris, a young woman called Elizabeth Whitley, who was the daughter of an industrialist in Leeds in Yorkshire, and then moved to England and to Yorkshire to marry her, live with her, work for that firm, and sort of discovered this whole new world of industrial revolution and patents and this idea that you could get ahead in the world, not just by doing well at what you're doing or by being respected, but by coming up with something new. And over the course of time, he sort of blended all of his interests photography, chemistry, optics, painting, and his professional qualifications and experiences. He worked in panoramas, which were these huge painted entertainments that people went to see, walked into a big empty room or hangar and could experience life on a huge scale recreated. He brought all of that into this idea he'd had, which was if you could make photographs move, then you would have something new and even better than the magic lanterns, the very crude magic lanterns that everybody at the time had at home and seemed to love. We had photography at this point, so we had still photographs. Yeah. These were a thing. So how did he make that leap from stills to motion pictures? Well, he was, at the time in Leeds, dedicated in his spare time to trying to innovate. I think he'd seen his father-in-law coming up with steam engine valves and boiler parts and that kind of thing and trying to improve them. And Louis 
being someone who's interested in photography and painting started with trying to come up with new ways of firing photographs onto China. So you can make cups and plates and sell those on the side. And one day in his little shed laboratory, he had a couple of the prints on glass plates of the photographs he was using. Mm-hmm. And they slipped in his hand and they sort of superimposed for a second. And as he caught them, he had, I think the words he used in his papers were the distinct impression that the figures in the pictures were moving just because he had them nearby. It's the famous of accident. Everything always happens by accident when it, when it comes to inventions, isn't it? It's like, oh, I left the Petri dish by mistake outside. And lo and behold. Exactly. By accident mm. and by synchronicity. Yes, exactly. Because at the same time, his, his kids had been given a magic lantern as a Christmas present. So they were looking at these slide displays every evening. Mm-hmm. And I think everything kind of came together in that way we imagine mm-hmm. of, oh, if I could recreate this accident that I can improve on that magic lantern mm-hmm. and have something completely new. And he really seems to have been immediately obsessed with the concept that this was the thing he'd been looking for without knowing it. Mm-hmm. So fast forwarding a bit, so he built a camera and what was the film? What was he recording on? How did it work? He built a camera and originally it was sort of a big, huge beast of a machine with 16 lenses on the front. Crikey. And the idea was... At the time, there was no film, flexible, moving film in ribbons, as we think of it Mm. now. It was all glass plates and relatively slow exposure. I think most people will be familiar with Edward Mybridge's horse in motion, the kind of running black and white galloping horse, which was done with what people called at the time instant photography. So that we don't count that as cinematography? No, because that was made with cameras run along a track side by side. I see, yes. And then they'd be blended together. And it was still, you know, a three-second thing in a loop. But that was sort of the the demarcation point that made other inventors think, oh, if we can take a photograph that quickly, then we can take many of them in a short burst and then connect them together and so on. So Mm -hmm. Le Prince's problem was using glass plates. If you take them that quickly, the plates break and shatter. So he first started with 16 lenses on one camera and two belts of glass plates on the inside of the camera. The idea being if you had two belts, then you could intercut between the frames. If the lenses were on the same camera, it would look like a single point of view. And hopefully, because he had those two belts, the the glass plates would have to move less quickly, break less frequently. And that didn't work very well. And what was interesting, though, is because it took him a long time working through this with his own money, by the time he had this first prototype and was working with it, he was living in New York, where his family had moved, kind of looking for the riches and promises of the new world. And he and his wife were working at a school for deaf-mute children. And so his first tests seemed to have been trying to put American Sign Language and lip-reading exercises onto camera as an education tool. So rather than Mm -hmm. anything kind of geared towards entertainment or making money or that kind of thing. He also brought in this idea of kind of filming these kids as a way to connect them to the world and to teach them how to communicate. Okay. So did he have a camera then? Like what was he, he was in the school recording these children. How did he do it? His 16 lens glass plate machine didn't work back in Leeds. So what's he using now? So he was trying to use a version of the 16 lens. What's fascinating in terms of determining his progress and what became the first film is he had a whole series of prototypes from there. Mm-hmm. He had one with 16 lenses. One prototype that doesn't survive but is written about had eight lenses, three lenses, and then there were the projectors because 
he was one of the first people to think about wanting to project the images life-size onto a wall. And so then there were projectors with one lens to throw the images and prototypes mm -hmm. with two and with three. And for years and years, he went back and forth and every change in the camera had to be matched by a change in the projector. We still don't have film at this point. We don't. It was glass plates and George Eastman, who would come up with the Kodak and sell it had a paper roll of film that had been designed for stills photographers so you would no longer have to lug around suitcases of glass plates but just put that in your camera you can take 30 35 exposures but that didn't work very well for film cameras because it would just rip moving through the camera at, at 10 or 12 frames a second the film that he that we know of his family yes. in leeds what was that filmed on that's the the film that he's known for not that he's very well known so that was almost certainly filmed on one of the early versions of celluloid, flexible film as we think of it now, Okay, which was essentially a new plastic that was flexible, but sturdy, coat and emulsion, and it could go through the camera and not break. And did he make that himself or was this, or, or we witnessing the birth of Kodak here? We're witnessing the birth of what Kodak would then take credit for really, because there were some other companies who got there first, but their product wasn't as well made. Right. or marketable. So it catered to only a few people like Le Prince until okay. Kodak came along. What year are we talking now? We've got film, we've got a camera, we've got a projector. He's made this film. This is 18... 1888. Before the Lumiere brothers come on the scene. Seven years before the Lumiere brothers Seven years. Screening. Okay. This is where it gets interesting. Why do we talk about the Lumiere brothers? Why don't we talk about Louis Le Prince? Well, the obvious answer is Le Prince, about two years after filming that first film, he's shot a few other things as samples of what the camera can do. And he's about to go back to America, premiere the device. And before he does, he returns to France to visit family, spends a couple of days with his brother, gets on a train, disappears, is never seen again. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So... He's going to go and show off his new invention. That is literally going to change the world and change yes. the world as we know it. Does he know the power of what he's created? Does he know, does he realise, I suppose, the potential? Does he go, holy crap, I've just invented the best thing ever and I'm going to go to America? He, according to his kids and the people who worked with him, he would speak all the time about his ideas that mm-hmm. motion pictures would change the world, that you'd be able to see how somebody on the other end of the planet lived and be in their shoes and you could teach with it and you could learn with it and you could give speeches. And amazing, amazing, especially at the time, most people like him just thought, oh, this will be great. I can show the circus with this. Yeah. Whereas he really conceived of the scope of it and he had sketches of what we would think of as cinemas, people gathering together to watch things. He was ready. And then, poof, he's gone. <laughs> Where did he go? This is the. Okay, before we go on, do you yes. know, do you, Paul Fisher, know what happened to him? You don't have to tell me what happened to him, but do you, do you think you know what happened to him? Like, because the story is he vanished and no one knows what happened to him, but I'm wondering if you yes. secretly know. You do. I feel like I know. Okay. I feel like I know. Because now we're going to get into the conspiracy. So here he goes. Yes. He, he's gone. Carry on the story. He's gone, he disappears, and because of the way the law was built at the time, as a missing person, it would take seven years to declare him dead. Until he could be declared dead, his family couldn't claim his intellectual property. So his patents, cameras, prototypes, all of that, put on hold for seven years. What did his family think when he didn't turn up at the station? Were they like, where's Louis going? Well, this is where it gets complicated and very Victorian. So I'm going to try and explain it simply, but he goes to France to visit his brother. His wife and kids are in New York waiting for him. They've Mm -hmm. rented this extremely famous at the time villa called the Jumel Mansion to use as a venue Mm -hmm. to premiere the film. So they're all the way across the Atlantic. Le Prince goes to the south of France to meet his brother. He's expected back in Paris to meet friends off the train who will then travel back to Leeds with him. And then he gets on the ship and and goes to America. So what happened was, by all accounts, his brother believed that he was met in Paris by his English friends. His English friends assumed, oh, he didn't get off the train, Ah. so he must have stayed longer with his brother. So it was several weeks. Before anyone realized. Exactly. Before his wife in America thought, he's not answering my letters. Where is he? And they did the whole, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Okay, in terms of his idea, then what happened? Because suddenly, lo and behold, these Edison comes up with the same idea, and presumably the Lumiere brothers, roughly the same sort of time, come up with the same idea. Did they steal it? Did they know about this idea that he had? What what happened? Edison is the fascinating one, because the Lumiere brothers really came a few years later and were not involved in motion pictures at okay, that time. No. But just a few months after Le Prince disappears, Thomas Edison announces he's come up with this machine to capture life. And Lizzie, Le Prince's widow, starts getting visits and letters from all her friends saying, have you seen this thing in the sun that sounds like what Louis was inventing? Hmm. And not just that, it sounds a lot like what Le Prince is working on. It also, which his family discovered later, was 
a completely novel design in motion pictures. For Edison, who had worked on a motion picture camera for years, only literally the same year that Le Prince disappears, starts integrating all these mechanisms that are present in Le Prince's patents. Okay, so it wasn't just the synchronicity of people inventing stuff at the same time, which happens all the time. Exactly. It wasn't. And Edison already had a reputation for being a bit of an unscrupulous thief. Mm. And it was also relatively well known that Edison had a library where he collected bound editions of all patents issued, that mm-hmm. he read through everything, that he was aware of everything. And so the prince's widow immediately becomes certain that Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is interesting, <laughs> arguably the most famous person in the West. It seems a bit, I don't know, I, I like conspiracy theories, yeah, but it does seem a bit like a conspiracy. Like, why would you, you wouldn't need to kill someone. You could just, there weren't many patent lawyers around at that sort of time. Nobody would, it would have just got chalked up to one of those things. Or Would you have had to kill someone to steal their idea? No. And Thomas Edison's, you know, he stole stuff and his clearly established pattern was to yeah. just sue people into oblivion. Exactly. Yeah. But I think there was a sense of the dramatic to Lizzie. And I think as the years passed, because she had to sit, unable to use her husband's inventions, mm-hmm. wait these seven years, watch other people get rich. I think whatever may have been kind of a suspicion at the beginning grew into this kind of bitter yeah. certainty. So presumably she wouldn't have made any money from the husband's invention. None whatsoever. It was never used publicly or commercially. But it did build to the point where eventually there was a lawsuit against Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. And Le Prince's family were involved in essentially trying to prove that Thomas Edison hadn't invented what he said he invented. Okay, so let's go back to Le Prince. What happened? If we don't think it was Edison bumping him off, which is yeah. quite fun, I suppose, but yeah. unli- unlikely, why, why did he vanish? Well, there were a few theories. The most popular one I came across while writing was this idea that he was in a state of financial ruin from spending so long paying for these machines, paying for these workers, mm-hmm. and couldn't face keeping up the lie that it was going all right and returning to his family. So he made himself disappear or killed himself. Mm-hmm. That's a very popular one. The issue with that is he does not seem to have been in very serious financial trouble. And presumably his wife would have known if he's, if he's suffering mentally. His wife would have known there was yeah. no body, which means he would, have, he would have killed himself in such a way as to never be found. Mm-hmm which seems difficult and also unlikely for a variety of reasons. But mm-hmm. that was a popular theory there, you know, people who've been obsessed with this mystery, because it is one of the kind of great late Victorian mysteries. There are theories that he actually made it to Paris off the train and was just unluckily mugged and thrown into the Seine and mm-hmm. washed up in the morgue and never recovered. Uh, that he may have just panicked about money and not killed himself, but gone to Marseille and joined the Foreign Legion and left. Mm-hmm. Or that someone he knew might have killed him. You know, Lizzie's brother, in some theories, was the one with, with financial trouble. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those, fascinatingly, because he was never found, it's almost like if his life was a film, it just cuts out. So weird. It's so Unexpectedly. strange. Yeah. And it's sort of very little to go on. Really strange. And okay, you've done lots of research into this. Yeah. So what's your preferred theory? My preferred theory would spoil the book. But <laughs> if I told you now. Yeah. But oh, it's it's poetic in a sad kind of way. Yeah. And what I found interesting digging into it is there was a theory that I thought was sort of unlikely and equally conspiracy theory e as the Edison one, mm-hmm. and just became one I couldn't ignore really. Yeah, that's really really interesting. Oh no, I want to know now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one 
Because there's no smoking gun. That's an interesting thing. You know, you go into these thinking, I'm going to solve this. There's going to be a piece of paper in an archive and and a final answer. So, okay, so you're not going to tell us what you think happened because we're going to go and buy your book, which is fair enough, I understand. But I mean, is there some bit of killer evidence that's solved the mystery for you? There isn't really. And I went into this fully expecting I would find one. I should find one. That's kind of the hook and angle of the book. Yeah. And then you you realize in a common sense kind of way, this happened 130 years ago. There <laughs> already wasn't one. much evidence. <laughs> You're not going to find one. <laughs> no. But I actually ended up finding more than I thought I would find. Well, this is the great thing about solving mysteries. It's not about the end game. It's about the journey. Exactly. And in a really, you know, I was a Sherlock Holmes nerd when I was a kid. Hmm. And it kind of took the shape of that Holmesian concept that if you just eliminate what's impossible, then whatever you're left with yes. is the thing. And I found whatever I was left with, I would bet my house that that's what happened. Interesting, But it, it also exists in that true crimey kind of space where you could debate it with your friends. I think we don't like conclusive ideas because we like the mysteries to be preserved because there is something just inherently enjoyable about the unknown mystery of something. We never want to find the Loch Ness Monster. We never want to find the truth about flying saucers because then you spoil the fun. I agree. Okay, just take us through. So he vanishes and then we have Edison coming up with his camera with a bit of industrial espionage, stealing his stuff. And then the Lumiere brothers come along and poor Louis Le Prince is completely forgotten. Completely forgotten. And part of that is, as we were discussing earlier, there's this idea that if you've never shown something publicly or commercially or sold a ticket, then it doesn't exist. Yeah. There's a Le Prince researcher called Irfan Shah, who lives in Leeds, who made a podcast about Le Prince. And there's a line he has about this idea that if you make a film and no one pays to see it, does it really exist? <laughs> exist. And that's kind of what happened to Le Prince. I can say yes, because I've done that. I've made films that no one's ever watched. And <laughs> well, exactly. That's most exist. of all of our careers. Exactly. That's, all, that's everyone. <laughs> but I think for Le Prince, there was that as well, this idea. And, and this blew my mind researching it. The films exist. The cameras exist. Yeah. The projectors exist. He had the patents that describe completely workable cameras. And, and people in Leeds have taken his single lens camera mm-hmm. and recreated it and taken it out on the street. And it works. But still, we don't believe he did it because no one sold a ticket or exploited it commercially. And that is how we determine whether something was a landmark or not. Well, it is. But the thing of what Louis Le Prince and what Edison and the Lumiere brothers didn't predict was the internet. And they didn't predict the advent of podcasts. And they didn't predict the idea that history can suddenly be looked at again. And you can Google Louis Le Prince's film and it comes up on Google and you can watch it. So, you know, it's been seen now. I saw it just before we came online. So it is, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the idea of film conservation as well, mm. that, because that is the big question with this as well, is that film is the first film in history, in a sense, if I want to get pedantic, that it's the oldest surviving film. Mm-hmm. It is possible he shot something a year earlier or mm-hmm. somebody else shot something six months earlier. It just mm-hmm. no longer exists. Yeah. It's a good Yorkshire story as well. There's the Film Museum in Bradford, I know. Yes. They are the only reason we can watched that bit of film is they restored it fantastic and tried to do all the guesswork of how to play and they have his if people go to the museum they have his single lens camera and projector and they have a little section on him nice well i feel sorry i feel a bit bad for the french though because now they're going to be really cross that it was a yorkshire or not a yorkshireman but it was in yorkshire so we we can sort of claim credit for it we liked we like doing that (laughs) that's the interesting thing well, they do as well. And I think that also is something that worked against Le Prince is he was French, mm. working in England, but hoping to live and sell his stuff in America. And so there was no one who could really, you know, the French can go, the Lumiere brothers are French. They mm-hmm. represent the French national spirit. The Americans can go, Thomas Edison, 
well, he's American, he's apple pie and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas Le Prince, because he had the sort of citizen of the world, not really from anywhere vibe, there weren't any, you know, in France, they have factions of historians about this stuff. They have people they call Lumierists who are dedicated to consolidating the theory that the Lumiere brothers came up with stuff. And then they have people in other camps breaking that down. Yeah. And obviously there's a whole cottage industry of people who write about Thomas Edison. And Le Prince didn't have anyone in his corner. No, he didn't have a base. It says a lot about us, doesn't it? Our psychology, that we like our stories about invention to be rooted in nationalism and all the things that make us human. For sure. You know, the British particularly. and Well, that's about everyone, yeah. It's got to mean something about us yes. and our take on progress yes. and how we move forwards in the world. Well, we like neat stories as well. We like, yes, he did it then. We do. Paul, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for rewriting history for us and for pointing out Louis Le Prince. It's a great story. Your book, Tell Us When, Tell Us Where, Tell Us How. Book is out April 7th, I believe, from Faber and Faber. What's it called? It's called The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures. Fantastic. Bold claim. And yeah, can be pre-ordered and found anywhere. That's it, folks. That's your lot for today. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. Paul's book, The Man Who Invented Motion Pictures, A True Tale of Obsession, Murder and the Movies is out now. So make sure you get a copy of that. Uh, also, remember, please to subscribe to the show for new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. I will be eternally grateful. And coming up next, we've got an episode with Tamandra Harkness, the great Tamandra Harkness, I love Tamandra, on the invention of zero, as in the number zero. Apparently it had an inventor, so we're going to find out about that. And I hope you will join us then. See you next time. Today's episode features music from Epidemic Sound. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented. 
for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.